Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. This is a project of CNG Partners Designed for Culture. I'm Jonathan Alger. Today, I'm joined by two experts in audiovisual systems, Tony Warner and Brian Abelowitz, to talk about the six secrets of exhibit technology. Uh -huh. Tony and Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Hey, Jonathan. For those who don't know you, I know you, I feel like I know everything about you and it's, I'm totally wrong. For the dear listener, could you each tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Tony Warner and I'm the president of Phase Shift Consulting. We're a, a technology consulting and design firm specializing in the museum uh, space. That, that means audio, visual, telecommunications and security. I think for today's purposes, we're going to be primarily focusing on audiovisual. Certainly happy to be here and, and lots to talk about with this topic. Great. Yeah. Very happy to have you here. Brian, how about you? I'm Brian Abelowitz with Phase Shift Technologies. Also, I've been in the museum technology genre for at least two and a half decades and really focusing on using technology in museums, but not detracting from the message keeping the technology to support the message and the mission. Got it. That's great. A couple of things I didn't know. I have a side question for, for both of you. I always like to ask, how did you get into the business of museums and exhibitions? It's always kind of a sideways route. Did you come in sideways or directly? I'm, I'm laughing because I have to go back before museums. And I don't know if you remember, there was that in high school, we had those AV nerds that ran around the school with the video with the projectors and the overheads and the screens and the recording equipment that was always me so I was the AV nerd in high school and then into college and I've always enjoyed museums and uh, I'm actually a um, closet um, history buff so um, it's just a natural extension of being the AV nerd and being passionate about history. Okay, now we're getting into stuff I really didn't know about you. Okay, I'm just I'm imagining you like dashing around the your high school with an, with a history book under your hand and a projector under the other. This is this is getting good. Okay, Tony, how about you? How did how did you? I achieved the rank of AV captain. AV captain? They have <laughs> ranks for that. Were you, was there an AV general? Was there a was there a dictator? I don't. Were there privates? Probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> That's awesome. See, unlike Brian, I I never I didn't aspire to be in the AV industry. I think I think very few people actually did. That's the the interesting thing is I think a lot of people found their way into. I know you asked about museums, but the AV field, a lot of us have found our way in. You know, either as as uh, failed musicians or one reason or another, but we found our way into an AV industry that we ended up loving. And then, you know, I think the museum space is just another extension of that. And for me, I love that it's it's a way to tie AV into just really the user experience and creating stuff that's special for people. And, you know, we, we work in some other vertical markets as well, but the museum space in particular is, is really special in the way that it engages people and, and kind of just draws them in. Um, now I have to I have to ask you because we have a we have, we have a retired uh, AV captain here. Uh, you said <laughs> you were a uh, you, some some of us are failed musicians. I, I prefer to refer to myself as recovering musician. Are, are you in that genre? <laughs> are you in that genre? Are you a are you a, a previous I guess you could musician? Say I'm a recovering musician. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we got that. Uh, we'll talk about that after the show. Okay. So anyway. These stories are great. I love them. Uh, what inspired you to come up with our topic for today, the six secrets of exhibition technology? Then we'll then we'll get into get into sure. it point by point. Where did it come from? You know, I think, you know, we Brian and I were chatting and, you know, we were like, what are the 
what are the biggest, maybe not pain, well, a couple of them are maybe pain points, um, you know, in areas that are, you know, frequently challenges in museum design. And then, you know, some of the other ones that we want to talk about today just really represent um, trends, where technology is going. And, you know, and people always love to hear about that as far as kind of what's the next thing. Um, is it ready for prime time yet or isn't it? What should, what should we have on our radar? And, you know, we try to make sure that we're staying out there on the on the cutting edge and uh, not necessarily always deploying that stuff, but being aware of it and knowing when the right time is to to start using it in design. So it's kind of putting all of that together and figuring out what are the six things that we, you know, we wanted to share with folks. All right. Well, they're, they're pretty juicy. So um, I, I have the <laughs> I have the list. It's a I have. I, and that's all I have. I don't know what the list means. So I'm as curious as our listeners. So number one, let's just get right into it. Number one is very display shapes. What does what does that mean? Where are you coming from with that? You know, today, displays come in all different shapes and sizes. If you want a two inch rectangle, like a viewfinder, we can we can do that. We can put viewfinders in an exhibit. But if you want a life-size experience, you want a 100-inch diagonal display, we can do that. And we have every display size in between. You know, even things that the trend now is aspect, different aspect ratios, display that's 36 by 9 or 21 by 9 or some other crazy ratio. So we can do stretch displays and displays that take on whatever shape or form you want within the ex, in the exhibit. And even... Even they don't have to be rectangles anymore. We can do squares. We can do circles. There's a company that makes a really cool round 24 inch diameter display that's just beautiful color, beautiful resolution. And imagine that, like in a in an exhibit that has a, a teardrop shape or a round shape, that in this display can be touch, non-touch, whatever you want, and it's readily available and ready to deploy. And I just think it really changes how the exhibit looks by using all the different shapes. And even if we get into collaboration, you know, um, these ultra wide stretch displays, you know, we start talking about distance learning and using things like Microsoft front, front row to bring the classroom into, into the institution. These wide aspect ratio displays really lead themselves to having the distant classroom with the near classroom and creating an immersive experience. That is, uh, do you remember the name of the, um, of the company that makes a circular display? Yeah, it's called Crystal Display out of London. Huh, that's great, Crystal Display. It's okay. really very, it's beautiful. Super, yeah. and just uh, for, for any listeners who don't know the, the jargon aspect ratio, could you quickly define that for us? Sure, aspect ratio is the um, the ratio of the width to the height. So typically a TV, your computer monitor, your, your the TV in your living room is probably 16 by nine or 16 by 10 aspect ratio, mm. which is not quite square anymore. Like we were kids, you know, this, the TVs are almost square. Mm, right. Well, now they're rectangles, but now we start talking about things that are almost wide strips, like almost, almost slithers mm -hmm. of, of displays. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. So uh, with varying display, I mean, obviously there are, uh, you've got a bunch of display shapes in mind that I didn't know about actually circular one. I'm going to like, you know, go Google that pronto, but the, um, the, the idea of varying display shapes, obviously you can do it, but you just mentioned something just now that it, you know, the reason why you do it, uh, it, that it, it, it makes the exhibition different. What's your, what's your take on why you would counsel your clients to vary those shapes? Getting back to the other question you had earlier when we started off, I mean, that's one of the things we love about the museum space, you know, 
we're designing corporate boardrooms, everything's 16 by nine. We don't, hmm. there's no consideration because it's all driven by, you know, computer resolutions and PowerPoint and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, I think the museum space lends itself great to opportunities to try new aspect ratios and things like that. And, and when stuff like that happens, it helps draw people in. It creates something new that's eye-catching. And um, it's just, it's a way to mix things up from what everybody's used to. And so we love it. I mean, we love, and that's, you know, projection. We didn't really talk about projection too much, but I mean, you know, that allows us to create all kinds of interesting shapes on on backgrounds and things like that. So um, for me, that's why I like to do it. Um, now, granted, I mean, it has its drawbacks because content is a little bit trickier, but I mean, we're generally developing our own content anyhow for right. museum space like you guys are. And so that's not a showstopper for for us. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's it's worth mentioning as a sidebar for our dear listener that when you do vary the display shape itself, the, the, the aspect ratio uh, or the quantity of shapes that are used simultaneously, uh, whether you make it round or you make it anything other than than what YouTube comes in, uh, you are on the hook to somehow make content that's in that format as well. But like you say, usually in exhibitions and museums, you're probably making the content uniquely for the project itself anyway. So yep. it's not as right. not as daunting to make custom content, at least minimally custom, mm-hmm. some, some content that's just just. Uh, unique enough to be out of the ordinary or, or ways to patch together existing content in clever ways. But I think it, it should be said that it's not it's not necessarily as easy as just getting something off of YouTube, but you shouldn't be getting something off of YouTube anyway. Um, anyway, number two here, I think it seems like it's related. Uh, number two in our six secrets of exhibit technology is select the right image size. Is that physical size or resolution size or... Actually, both. You know, we have to ask ourselves, what is the resolution of the content? Is it something that's archival footage that's low resolution from World War II? Or is it something that somebody just went out with a red camera and shot a reenactment of just beautiful footage? Mm. And, and we need to really select a display that leverages that content to the best of its ability. Yeah, I, I did a presidential library project where they actually transferred um, home movies president's former president's home movies from 35 millimeter to 4k video and then Mm. at the there was a mock-up of the white house and at the end of the white house we put a 98 inch 4k display Mm -hmm. and the reason why was you could get you know you're walking down the hallway of this um mock-up of the white house and you want to be able to look out the window Mm -hmm. but when you put 35 millimeter footage that's transferred very well to 4k video it's like looking out a window onto the onto the lawn and seeing the kids playing out on the lawn, just like the president would have done 50 years ago. As you said, the, the 35 millimeter is sort of re- uh, resolutionless, it's sort of continuous resolution. And when you basically scan it at a really high resolution, you have to make it digital today, you put it on 4K, it, it, it's, uh, it, it looks very seamless because the pixels are small. Photorealistic. Right. Yeah. Oh, I like that. I, opportunity to actually rescan from original 35 millimeter is terrific. So that's that's a resolution. Pick the right resolution. That's resolution. And then size. You have to ask ourselves, how far is the viewer going to be from the screen? <clears throat> like you think about when you go to the movies and you sit in a theater, nobody ever sits in the first few rows. Nobody wants to sit that close to the mm-hmm. screen. But there's a natural tendency to sit about one times the width of the screen back. 
So if you think of this, the screen is 20 feet wide in the theater, you're probably naturally inclined to sit about 20 feet back or maybe a little bit farther. Hmm. And the reason why you sit back a little bit farther is because your field of view, which is about 90 degrees or so, actually, that screen fills your fills your field of view. Mm-hmm. So you just naturally gravitate to those locations. And then so we can, depending upon where your visitor is going to be viewing the information from, we can size accordingly. But then we also have to consider the architecture. You know, if there's a lot of elaborate artifacts on this wall and I only have 22 inches of real estate to put a display, but I know I need to tell the story. Well, that then we have the form has to trump the function mm-hmm. and we have to make sure that the, that the size of the display doesn't overtake the artifact. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes a very careful balancing act between the size of the digital information versus the size of the artifact. And that's something we rely on our design partners like, like you, Jonathan, to really guide us in what is the appropriate size for the for the exhibition so you were just you just put out a really interesting rule of thumb i think which is audiences let me see if i can uh, paraphrase the way a listener would audiences will uh, naturally gravitate to a point as far away from the display as the display is wide and any closer than that they'll feel a little bit uncomfortable did i get that right it can. A lot of folks feel that way. And in fact, there's another rule that says the farthest viewer shouldn't be any farther than six times the height of the display. So imagine your standard 55-inch diagonal display is nominally two feet tall. Mm-hmm. You know, The farthest viewer shouldn't be more than about 12 feet away hmm. to be comfortable viewing that information. Hmm. And a lot of those, a lot of those best practices, or I guess they're actually, they're ANSI standards now um, in the industry. They're they're derived by ergonomics. So, you know, it's it's like if I'm I'm looking at this screen right now with you, Jonathan, and, you know, it's based on what's the comfort level for my eyes to wander off axis horizontally and vertically. And at which point do I start to realize eye strain after prolonged viewing? And when you get inside of that, that metric that Brian was just giving you, it starts to create eye fatigue. So it's it's, it's not that you can't view it. Um, but it's definitely that front row of the movie theater kind of syndrome where you you're sitting there and you know nobody wants to be in that position in the theater and watch a movie for two hours because you know how it's going to feel when you come out. Right. So the, the 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 sweet spot is between one times the width of the display closest and six times the height of the display farthest. I think that's a good general rule of thumb. I mean, there's, there's all of kinds yeah. of variables, but right. Right. as Brian said, you know, we we tend to start at what's best practice, what's standard. And then I would say only about 10% of our projects actually allow us to, there's some other parameters that trump that. Right, and, right. you know, those, those, those standards are based on ideal, you know, ideal scenario, but there's, there's a lot of variability there for us to, to kind of work within the architectural constraints and exhibit constraints. So. And you just, I want to circle back around to something you just mentioned to me, ANSI standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there, you said there are now ANSI standards for this. Could you, um, unpack that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. So um, AVIXA, uh, formerly Infocom, is the AV Commercial AV Trade Association. Mm-hmm. And right. probably for 15 or 20 years, they've been um, an authorized publisher of and developer of ANSI standards. So they actually have um, very well-documented design standards. And video like uh, display sizes is one of those. And 
if you want to be put to sleep, you can read that some night. It's uh, <laughs> it gets very technical and very scientific, which we love, but it's um, but it's very informative and it gives us guidance. And prior to that, there it was really kind of just the wild west as far as design standards. But now we actually have industry standards developed for that. Okay. So, and uh, for our listeners, uh, ANSI A N S I is American National Standards Institute. And that institute has standards for all kinds of things, actually, not just audiovisual, but uh, many other kinds of things in architecture and building and uh, manufacturing and and so on. So that's great. Okay, so less the yeah. Wild West and more ANSI. I'm getting ANSI to get on to. Uh, <laughs> don't laugh at that. That that was a very that, uh, that was a dad that was joke. A, that was a dad joke. Oh, that was a dad. That wasn't even a dad joke. That wasn't even good enough to be a dad joke. That was that was low quality humor, and I regret it. Uh, but you can rescue me by uh, telling me about number three, uh, which I love as a recovering musician, uh, which is use unique speakers. Yeah. What, what do you mean unique? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was I was thinking as we were just talking about the previous two, unlike the video um, on the audio side, we we don't want people to see those. And, you know, in the video, we're trying to use that to draw people in in the audio. Yes, we're using that to draw people in, but obviously not visually, more orally. And um, so we want to hide the speakers and we don't want those to make a big visual statement generally. So um, there's some really innovative products out on the market right now that mm -hmm. are designed for really unique architectural applications or exhibit applications. And mm -hmm. um, there's one company in particular that their main specialty is designing architecturally unique uh, products. So they literally have loudspeakers that are just slightly bigger than a postage stamp. What? and yeah, and about a quarter inch thick, and you can paint them. So, you know, and they, they need to have a small miniature subwoofer with them, but it creates all kinds of new interesting applications. And, you know, for a speaker that size, obviously it has limitations on how loud it can go as well. So um, if you want louder, you can go to the one that's like four inches tall and an inch wide. Um, mm. And they have, they, they have ones at scale and they're all paintable, but um, it's just really neat because you can blend them into architecture, into tiny little places where you can't even see them. I mean, they're really popular in restaurant applications uh, where hmm. you can put speak. We want a smaller, more contained sound that's localized to that space. So, and then the same company makes um, a speaker. They actually call it the Anaconda. It's actually, it's it looks like a snake. It's a large, completely flexible, uh, it's about four feet long. And you can daisy chain, put a bunch of them together and connect them, but you can wrap them around a space, you can wrap them around an exhibit, and they basically um, emit sound on uh, 360 degrees, but it gives you all kinds of versatility in, in kind of design. And then there's another company, several companies have been doing this for a while, but that make hidden speakers that you basically can integrate into gypsum and then completely mud over them so you can't see anything of the speaker and it just blends and basically fades right into the wall and then you paint over it and it's there it's, it's essentially transducers that are they're utilizing the wall surface but then there's also you know the traditional just you know in the museum space has been using transducers and and incorporating those into designs for quite some time and that's still in use we don't see them as often uh, today as maybe we did a few years back those are some of the I would say some of the more cutting edge uh, versatile speakers that are out there. So it gives us a lot of options as designers to to kind of just blend those in and do creative things with the audio. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Making the Museum, 
a project of CNG Partners Designed for Culture. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I'm talking with Tony Warner and Brian Abelowitz about the six secrets of exhibit technology. So I think our next point is going to be number four, and that is transparency is cool. I assume that's display transparency and not philosophical transparency <laughs> or financial transparency, although I guess those are cool as well. Yeah, it, it, we're talking about image transparency, and, and I don't mean ghosts and people floating around. Um, I hear the word hologram a lot. I hear it all the time. Right? <laughs> Everybody wants a hologram. Most popular their, thing to watch. Experience. Yeah, that's right. And then they talk about Pepper's Ghost, mm -hmm. right? And Pepper's Ghost is a hundred-year-old technology using light and reflection. Nothing to do with technology at all. Mm -hmm. And then we want to, and then we get asked, well, how do I create holograms and, and transparent images now? So there are there are some products out there that um, create floating objects, and they do that through spinning LEDs, and they mm -hmm. do it through special lenses and special technology. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of ways to create that pseudo 3D. Everybody wants the matrix effect, mm -hmm. and we're seeing some products now that actually get pretty darn close to that. Um, there, there's some organic LED technology or OLED, and there's some manufacturers now that make this OLED technology, which is actually, when it's not on, it's see-through or almost see-through. And when it's on, it creates a nice sharp image that can be placed in front of an object and it can tell a story about an object. Um, these, these OLEDs are, are small, they're light. They're even some of them are even flexible. They can be bent to certain shapes to create, you know, rings or or um, different kinds of um, layouts for your for your exhibit. Uh, we actually they can be actually arraying OLEDs as a video wall, so we can actually create a fairly large canvas in an exhibit that 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 functions as a foreground, a storytelling foreground in front of a background that you can, that you can see as well or in addition to the information that's in front of you. Beyond that OLED, we also see LED mesh. So we can act manufacturers are making strips of LED and matrices or patchworks of LED that when they're laid out on a piece of glass, they're 80 or 90% transparent. So you can actually look through them and it gives you the ability to have like a retail space where you can actually have images on the glass, but we can see through the glass to see what's behind. And there's even technology now where we embed LEDs into glass, into substrates. So imagine you have a um, glass railing, handrail in your museum and that where the stair, where the central stairs are, and the, the central escalators in, in the, in the, rotunda in the museum and you have that glass handrail that goes all the way around that opening mm -hmm. but we can actually make those digital now we can there there's manufacturers out there that make these digital handrails and we can turn what was in traditionally a blank piece of glass or maybe something that you eventually put graphics on because it's a great place to tell a story well we can digitize that and make it digital and have continuous messaging that can be targeted time of day you know you know, upcoming exhibits, coming attractions, whatever you want to do, whatever messaging you want. So we can take that formerly unused space and make it digital and active. So if you do that, um, and that, that sounds uh, super cool, you guys get to play with all the toys. This is no fair. But when you do that, what happens when the light bulb burns out? Or is, is that not even the right question to ask? That's like a how many 
exhibit designers to take to screw in a light. But is that like a too old a question to ask? It's just not relevant. Yeah. Uh, what what happens? Because it's, it's, if it's embedded in glass, how do you uh, maintain it? Or do you not have to? That's a good question. I mean, they're embedded in glass. They're probably one meter segments, but they're rated to last 100,000 hours. Right, which is... You know, maybe in 10 years it becomes an issue or 15 years, mm -hmm. but by then maybe we're tired of it anyway. Right. But it is repairable and it is technology that's encased in glass. So it's reasonably reliable until somebody drives, you know, the proverbial forklift. Through. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I uh, renovated an apartment not too long ago and when I... I thought, because I'm trained in architecture, I thought I was going to have to put the big, tall, giant aluminum cans up into the ceiling to get down lights in the apartment and all of this. And the guy at the lighting store said, no, I just, you know, use one of these. And he threw it to me. It was basically kind of like thinner than a hockey puck. And it's a little LED. And I said, like, I don't, I don't need to have the crew make a 18 inch deep hole in the ceiling. He said, no, you don't have to make them have a hole in the ceiling at all. You just dig out about an, an inch and a half and just sort of slip this up there and get power to it. And I asked, how do you, how do you, how do you fix a light? How do you change a light bulb? And he said, the joke, the joke today is that you just don't, uh, when it comes time to change a light bulb, that's 20 years from now, because like you said, like a hundred thousand hours divided by the number of hours it's on during the day, hopefully they don't have it on during the night. That gets you a lot of days. I was like, you know, 10 years or whatever. And sure. at that point you replace the entire fixture. And I just sort of said, okay, and installed an apartment full of, full of that. So I guess we'll see in 10 years, but I guess that's what you're talking about, right? It's just, it's a new, we're not screwing in light bulbs anymore. The jokes, the joke is over officially. Right. No, you're just, you're making light with LEDs and no organic LEDs use so much less power. I mean, that spot you were going to put in a recess can in your in your kitchen probably drew 100 watts. Now you're lucky if you're drawing three watts through your LED hockey puck. That is true. Yeah, it used to be that if you went around the went around your house turning out all the lights, you were doing you were doing something great for your light bill and something great for the planet, but nowadays it's you should start with your hair dryer and your clothes dryer, etc. because the LED bulbs aren't aren't actually pulling that much power, which is interesting. Sure. Anyway, I digress. Um, number 5 on your list is uh, is a is a juicy one. It's a longer one. Network district number five. Network distribution of audio and video is the future. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about that. We all want to know what the future is, and you, you guys know the future. What well, it so AV like so many other systems. I mean, in the last um, decade, have really been pushing towards distribution over standard network cables and protocols. So Ethernet and um, both audio and video, um, and certainly there's a lot of different solutions on the market to push audio and video down those network lines. And while the other stuff we talked about is kind of the stuff that's out and, you know, is visible, the network stuff's all the stuff behind the scenes. So it's um, stuff that maybe end users don't care about as much, but as designers and, you know, like yourself, Jonathan, we we care a lot about how we're getting signals from point A to point B. And particularly in historic architecture, uh, places like that where infrastructure is um, can be very challenging. We have to be very cognizant of this. And the more that we can converge our signals onto um, a standard type of network distribution, there are a lot of benefits for um, our systems as well as the building design. Um, one of the benefits of, of 
going to network though is that we're stand we're now using standard industry protocols like ethernet which starts to open up opportunities to leverage wireless technology and wire and leverage things like poe or power over ethernet and both of those are i would say emerging technologies in the audio video field i mean they've been around for a while but as far as um you know getting control signals across those is easy when we start to try to get push video across um wireless it can be done i mean we all do it at home with apple tv and, and stuff like that but we also have all seen kind of the some of the reliability and the resolution challenges with that stuff too and and that's not acceptable in in the museum space so um we tend to with wireless we're watching that closely and i believe there will come a day when it can be our um our primary design method we personally believe that it's not quite there today. Uh, one of the interesting things is, you know, people say, well, if you have wireless, you don't need wires, but you still need power. So mm -hmm. if we're going to have power at the exhibit mm -hmm. or the wireless receiver, then we've already had to deal with infrastructure to get the power there. So if we're doing that, we may as well get network cable there as well and right. hardwire um, to just give us better reliability. And then I think with the thing with the POE, um, POE is really um, interesting. We can power lights. We can power all kinds of stuff like that today. Um, can we just back up for a second and say POE again? What is that for our listeners? What does that stand for? Sure, it, it is sure. kind of sounds revolutionary. What what is it exactly? So POE stands for Power Over Ethernet, and it's basically using a standard network cable, an Ethernet cable, mm -hmm. and running power down that line as well as the network signal. And what that allows us to do is run one cable to a, a device at the edge, uh, we call it an edge device, um, whether that's an amplifier or a light, and we can actually power that device now just with the network cable and not using um, standard electrical power. So in other words, you're saying that, that that thing out there that is getting the signal to, so you're, you just said a couple of things here, just let me unpack it for a minute. You're saying mm -hmm. that the actual video signal, that signal that usually would come in the old days out of your DVD player through an HDMI cable and into mm -hmm. a monitor, that signal does not need to be on those, you know, thick macho cables anymore. It can be over ethernet and it can also even maybe eventually be over the air. Mm -hmm. That's what you're talking about, visual, audio, video over Wi-Fi. And also that that device out there that's playing back the audio video, visual content it uh, doesn't need to be plugged in it could be getting right. its power from the from that ethernet cable and that's that does seem pretty revolutionary yeah. we can't can to, we get power over wi-fi can you do that not can you yet do that to us <laughs> when do we get that is that like later this we'll year get there. when is that when we'll is get that? there um but just a caveat a few of those a few of those summaries you said um and you're absolutely right the the power over ethernet though as of today the, the number of devices that it can, or the types of devices that it can power are still very limited. So for us, when we're talking amplifiers, things like that, there are POE enabled amplifiers, but they're very small ones that are for maybe paging applications, things like that. So um, can they, will we get there? Absolutely, but we're not there completely today. So I just, I just wanna make sure that the listener doesn't hear like we can do everything over POE and we can do everything over wireless. Those are emerging technologies that we're watching closely. And some of them are ready for prime time. Other ones are still developing, but but to your one point, um, 
of pushing HDMI cable down a network line, absolutely, we're right there today. In fact, that's the way to do it is because, I mean, we can only, there are distance limitations to running an HDMI cable. So we mm -hmm. typically would convert that to fiber or copper or a network cable, and then we can go long distances with that. So the, the idea of, of sending a video signal over an ethernet cable, the idea of sending power over an ethernet cable and you know the idea of setting it all like over the air is the best of all but um you mentioned there are limitations of the power over ethernet uh, and it's a growing sort of uh, cutting edge sort of a thing w what are the limitations based on is that is that just uh there's a certain amount of power that you can put through a cable and the device at the other end therefore needs to not be a a, a big power you can't power a refrigerator with it but you could power a small Speaker, is, is that where the limitation that's, comes from? That's exactly right. I mean, you can only push so much current. I mean, they're very, they're very small gauge wires um, that are on a network Ethernet cable. So you can only push so much current down that. Got it. Okay. That's super interesting. And I guess we've been talking about getting things from point A to point B. So your your last point, number six, seems to uh, maybe it's the reason that you need to get things from point A to point B because point uh, point number six here on the list of six secrets of exhibit technology, number six, uh, centralized versus decentralized equipment rooms is important. By important, I guess you mean it's it's one or the other, but it's an important decision to make or is one of them mm -hmm. better than the other? Well, it's a big design consideration today and there, there are camps that argue for both. So, I mean, I guess in a nutshell to say, you know, if, if we have, if we have 20 different exhibits um, around the museum, do we basically, the question is, do we create one centralized AV control room that all of those exhibits table back to? And then all of the, the head end system equipment is located back in that control room versus that would be the centralized model versus decentralized where we basically, we try to avoid having that centralized room, um, which architects usually favor. Um, we have to oftentimes kind of argue for that. Mm -hmm. The real estate's valuable. Um, so the decentralized would say we're going to locate all of the equipment specific to each of those 20 exhibits at those exhibits. And they're going to, they may, they might tie together on the network, but essentially they're going to be standalone. Um, and there are pros and cons to both of those. And, you know, I think for, and there, there's no right or wrong. There's times when, when we would, when we would, um, encourage one way versus the other but you know the benefits of it i think for the most part we would always we would typically argue for the equipment room in large applications and it it allows us to have several things we can have um, cheaper power and well-designed cooling and ups and instead of having local small ups's at each exhibit um and by having that professionally designed by an mep engineer we can have um, better conditioned air spaces um, that'll extend the life expectancy of the AV equipment in those spaces. And we can serve POE, power over ethernet. We can serve that to a lot of the exhibits from that central place, um, which is also typically tied to the building network. One of the big ones I would say is it's much more organized for technicians. We were working on a museum project um, in, in the last year and the client was adamant about that they were going to have, they didn't want a centralized control room, but it was going to necessitate probably 
45 minutes every morning of a technician going around and powering up the AV equipment at each exhibit. Right. Uh, yep. There was also no centralized um, control system and show management. So mm -hmm. the, when you take into account the technician time for that, um, and also if an, if an exhibit has a failure or there's a problem with equipment, does the technician go out into the space where you have um, where you have visitors or do they go and troubleshoot that in the control room behind the scenes? Mm -hmm. um, and certainly the latter is, is I think a more favorable condition. Mm -hmm. um, however, some of the small, smaller exhibits that have, don't have a lot of multimedia components, if they only have one or two thin client devices, they can oftentimes be mounted behind a display and just be localized um, right at the exhibit. And it doesn't probably warrant running all of the cable back to a centralized equipment room. So it's really, it depends on the scenario, um, how much equipment's going in there, but we would typically um, encourage people to plan for a centralized equipment room right from the beginning. And that really kind of impacts the base building design as well. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, I'm I'm going to go back and do a quick run through jargon police move on you here. <laughs> I got to ask you for some definitions. Uh, by equipment, you said head end equipment. I think you're talking about the computers and the playback stuff, and the tail end equipment is the are the monitors and the speakers that are out on the floor. If I got that right, that's that's a perfect way of uh, yeah breaking that so down. You're looking. You're saying you put, the, put the computers in the centralized area but of course the monitors and speakers need to be out where the where the Absolutely. Where, where you got yeah. the people right okay maybe amplifiers processors those kind of things that are all behind the scenes that right the sort of the, the, heart, the heart of the boxes system. with the blinking red lights they exactly. they're all in a in a dark room happy with one exactly. another okay uh okay more jargon ups you mentioned ups they That's deliver your packages. You're, no, <laughs> so you stole my line, but UPS, let's just make sure our <laughs> listeners know what that means. It's an uninterruptible power supply. So basically, um, um, a lot of us probably have them on our computers, personal computers, things like that. So if we have a power outage, they, mm -hmm. they keep the equipment that's hooked to them running um, mm -hmm. without failure for several minutes. Um, in a museum, a lot of times what we want to do is we'll have that just so that we can either until a building puts over to generator power if there is one, or at a minimum so that it gives technicians time to do an organized shutdown of, of a lot of the equipment. A lot of our equipment is computer-based these days, and mm -hmm. that equipment doesn't do well with hard power outages. So um, it's good practice just to put a lot of the equipment on a UPS. Got it. Okay. Two, uh, two last ones. MEP, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing. If you have an MEP good. engineer, that <laughs> is what they're in charge of. They're trained to do that. And the last one, I, we got to clarify this one, thin client devices. So, so probably the easiest thing for people to associate that is with is Apple TV. You know, you have a small, a small, like one inch by four inch by four inch device that, mm -hmm. uh, but there are, there are a lot of computers today and a lot of other AV equipment that is kind of that small profile and what that, we call that a thin client. And it allows us, you know, those types of devices are so small that we can mount them behind flat panel displays um got it so it's not it's not client in the fire. sense of like you know lawyers have clients it's client in the sense of uh it's like the the piece of technology at the far end it's like the almost like the client to the computer uh yeah. somewhere out there it's it's on it's on the on that on the the end that's receiving the service that's what you mean by client you got exactly right yep got it. okay 
Okay, I've just had to do that. Some of, the, some of that is a vernacular that we use every day, and sometimes unknowingly we just throw it out and don't realize that it's not commonplace. <laughs> it's good. I see. Well, I've, I've sat with clients, and I've, 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 I know both of you well, and I've sat and watched you talk about it. Sometimes I see the actual client, not the thin client, but the actual client that's paying the bills, kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of glaze over a little bit. They're, they've kind of got like they're, they're writing down acronyms and they're saying, "What the? How the UPS? I'm going to have a like a." a parcel service delivery, and then the clients are going to be thin. I don't know what's going on. Uh, so anyway, it's, it's great to have all of these. It's great to have those definitions. Thank you for uh, permitting the jargon police to uh, police you. So let's see here. Um, we have been talking about the six secrets of exhibit technology, and they are, number one, very display shapes. Let's see if I got this right. Very display shapes. Two, select the right image size. Three, use unique speakers. Four, transparency is cool. Five, network distribution of audio and video is the future. And uh, number six, centralized versus decentralized equipment rooms is important. How did I do? Any any last thoughts? Any more? I think you're hired. Okay. You design with <laughs> no, us. No, you're hired. Uh, anyway, Tony and Brian, it's been great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. And you know, thank you, everyone, for listening. And hopefully this was... Um, there's some nuggets in here that were of help and, uh, you know, we love AV. We, you know, like Brian said, he's, he started it back when he was the AV, uh, what would you call it? The AV captain? <laughs> captain of the AV club. Brian, you're, you're going to, you're not going to live that one down. I'm afraid. Not. <laughs> so my next question is to find, uh, to ask, uh, on behalf of our listeners, how they might get in touch with you. And would you also, uh, mention you're a member of Praxis. Would you also please uh, tell our, our, our listeners what that what that is? How so? How can people get in touch with you? And what is this Praxis thing? Sure. So um, you can get in touch with us either personally, via email. So again, Tony Warner. My email is twarner at phaseshift.com. and and Brian's is uh, b abelowitz <laughs> um, a b e l o w i t z at phaseshift, or more Got easily, it. just info at phaseshift.com will get to mm -hmm. us as well. So Great. Praxis is, uh, thank you for asking about that. Praxis is a, a network of um, museum professionals. We are a, a small group that is working to advance the, the museum industry and our various professions through webinars, through networking, just through service to the museum industry. So it's unrelated to this to this uh, specific uh, podcast, but I do appreciate you asking about that. And again, if you, if you reach out, I'd be happy to give you more information about that. Great. Okay, that's all for this episode. I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.